0: Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and at www.permanentrecordpodcast.com.
1: The Blue Zone Podcast Network presents Permanent Record, an in depth look at the classic albums of the seventies and eighties, albums which have earned a permanent place of honor both at our hearts and in our record collections.
2: Thanks, Jim McKay. Appreciate the introduction. Hey, everybody. We are back. It's supposed to be a Duran Duran week. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Yeah, I don't think so. My name is Brian, of course, across from the table here.
0: Hi, I'm Sarah.
2: We have Sarah, and here's my left, Sarah, to your right, old friend of the show. He's been here many times before. We talked about The Cure with him, The Human League, and a mixtape episode last summer. That's right. You know him. I I know him. We all love him. It's my friend, Colby Zell. Colby, how's it going?
3: It's going pretty well. Uh, Always glad to bring in the summer again with another mixtape.
2: That's right. You have your nice summer shirt on. Nice summer shirt. Beautiful summer weather outside (laughs) today, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which is not the truth. Mm. Last summer, we did a mixtape episode where we just talked about a bunch of different songs in different bands. It seemed to go over pretty well. I thought it was entertaining to listen to. We got some nice feedback, and people asked for us to do some more.
0: Yes, it's true.
2: So this is mixtape for the summer of 2018. Yes, Last year's episode was such a success,
0: Uh-huh.
2: Universal, in the universal opinion, Universally. That, that we were like, how can we make this year's episode even better?
0: What could we do to improve upon it?
2: And I came up with one idea, and that would be, over the course of the show, many times you've heard us mention a podcast called The Hustle. Yes, yes. With our friend John Lamoureux and how we learned something or other on his show. We had a chance to actually do something with John Lamoureux, and he is not here with us in person, but he is with us here in spirit via Skype. John, can you hear us?
1: I can. Hi, everybody. Hey, Hey, John. John, Thanks
2: for calling in.
1: You bet. Thanks for inviting me. I'm honored. This
2: is going to be a real treat. John, of course, is the host of, like I said, The Hustle Podcast, and he has- Almost 200 episodes available right now. I know that his, his current episode isn't really number 200, but you've done a bunch of like bonus episodes. In fact, you just put one out within the last day or two that deals with a Bowie documentary.
1: That's right. Yeah, I think overall we've done about 200. Uh, we put a new episode out every Tuesday. I tell people the focus of the podcast is to learn about the emotional, psychological, and financial impact of brief rock stardom. So, for instance, if you've gone from nothing to having a hit in 1984 and then kind of back to nothing again, how does that feel? How do the transitions in your life, how do you look back at them now? And I will say that was kind of the original idea of the podcast, and it still is. But we've been really lucky in that we're starting to talk to more and more people who have had long careers in music. And I try to, I try to do both, um, because what really the story I really want to tell is still that guy who put out one album in 1977 and then never had another crack at it, you know? How does that guy feel? But it's also fun to interview Terrence Trent Darby and John Oates from Holland Oates and people like that, you know? Right. So and those were two guys. Anybody. Those were
2: two guys that you just talked to this past year. I, John Oates was in, in January, I think. Mm-hmm. And Terrence Trent so, Darby, which who does not go by that name anymore, was just last week.
1: No, <laughs> no he sure doesn't. He has a new name <laughs> and uh, a new life. And that was a very exhausting interview. <laughs>
2: oh, <no. laughs> and, it, and it was actually one of your shorter episodes. <laughs>
1: Yes, I couldn't deal with it. Oh, I had, no. I couldn't, we couldn't keep going. Oh man, yeah,
2: <laughs> I actually felt rough. bad for you because you have said many times over the years that he is someone you really wanted to talk to. And then, like, as the first hour of the show was was wrapping up, to hear you say, "Like, well, I'm going to let you go," <laughs> yeah. I was like, that... "He's not enjoying this, oh. and he's he's <laughs> wanted this interview for like three years."
1: Oh, that's yeah. not a good thing. He uh, he's an interesting guy, and he uses millions of big words to describe very simple things that other people can say very clearly and um, he just he wasn't going to go where I wanted to go and I when I realized that I had said about all I could and I I put up with all I could put up with I just <laughs> decided to cut this off <laughs> oh man <laughs> so, so that sounds terrible I am so glad that I got a chance to talk to him and I really hope that we could make it more lighthearted about his music and his career but he's just not built that way uh-huh. and yeah so it
2: was never like uncomfortable to listen like as a listener it was never uncomfortable or it never felt like you weren't having a good time it but you know he he did talk about some crazy things
1: yeah yeah and like he made a claim at one point that there had been threats made on his life several times yeah and I wanted to follow up on that, but if I did, we would just go down some rabbit hole for another half hour that probably wouldn't even answer the question very clearly anyway, you know, (laughs) and you realize you're just stuck in these situations. So I left all this interesting stuff kind of dangling in the air because I thought if I, if I press on that, we'll be here for days. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And
0: then
2: Jan's got to edit all that.
1: Yes, my buddy Jan, he uh, Jan Mokkevich, he lives in Scotland. We've known each other for a long time. He is far more tech savvy than I am, so he really gets off on being the producer and putting everything together and making it sound great. And I do, I get to do the interviews.
0: That sounds like a pretty good trade-off.
1: Yeah, works for me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you a quick question before we get started, just because I've always been curious about this, just for you personally, maybe it has never been scary to you to talk to these, these musicians, but assuming that it was, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, was it scarier in the beginning? When you were getting smaller name groups like Pseudo Echo and, and Blue Zoo and stuff, was it scarier in the beginning to, to reach out and start talking to these people? Or is it, is it scarier to talk to like John Oates, who is a bigger star, but now you have like four years experience doing this, three or four years? Which one is, is more daunting?
1: Yeah. Um, I got to be honest. It's never been that daunting. Really? Um, yeah. It never really has. The only times I ever get really nervous are if— I feel that I haven't found a good enough hook to go to work off of with, with who I'm talking to. You know, I've been a Holland Oates fan my whole life. I could have talked to John Oates for hours. The hard part was I only got about a half hour, you know, forty minutes out of him. Mm-hmm. I do worry sometimes. I've been I get told that I'm better at it than I was when we first started, but I worry sometimes that the enthusiasm or the passion has gotten weaker just because the, it's not as exciting anymore. You know, those, the first little while, the, the lead singer of, I don't know, reflex, you know, <laughs> yeah. who we're going to talk about in a minute is on the other end of the phone and you're just di- I cannot believe yeah. I'm talking to this guy. Well, I've done, you know, after 200 tries, it, that enthusiasm gets a little less, but no, the only times I'm ever nervous is if I feel like I haven't found enough interesting things to help an audience discover about this person okay that's kind of cool that's
0: a good answer Yeah, that's it's a good good for you because that means you are comfortable doing what you do And that must be why you do it so well and have done it for so long
1: Well, thank you and the other thing and i've said this before on my own show that being nervous doesn't help anybody You know, you're getting this person to come on. I they didn't come to me They didn't ask to be on my show. I went to them and i'm just some little podcast I need them to believe that they are dealing with a professional and so when the interview starts, I could either be fumbling and mumbling and nervous and, uh, so you know, Chris Farley on a Paul McCartney sketch, <laughs> or I could lead them to believe they're dealing with a professional, and I have to make them believe that. And so you can either step up in that experience or you can fail, and I choose to step up. I hope that made sense, you know? Oh, I don't very much. Absolutely. It. Yeah. Ner- being nervous doesn't help anyone. That's
2: a good point. Final question: Did you send Jenya Raven a picture of your, of your belly button?
0: <laughs> now that
1: must be an inside question because I do not know what that is. You, you don't have to answer that. Oh, I didn't. I didn't um, think I didn't think you did. And believe me, it, no one on earth wants that picture. <laughs> <laughs> She never sent me a picture of her belly button either. But thankfully, if you Google image, there are things out there. There are other pre-existing photos. Oh, that is so hilarious that you would ask me that question (laughs) of all things. (laughs) I love it.
2: All right, so we got the four music warriors here. Why don't we jump into compiling this year's summer mixtape, guys? Oh, Sounds like right. a plan. All right, so I'm going right. to go first. Oh, no, Sarah's going to go first, because I've already talked enough. Oh, all right. So, Sarah, why don't you give us a little introduction and okay. make it obvious when I should hit the song, and I'll, I'll hit it when All I...
0: right. Last year, we did a mixtape, and as we were preparing for it, we were going to get out the, the CDs or the, the albums or whatever we had of the songs that we were choosing, and you thought you knew what I was going to pick, and you yes. pulled out this particular CD, and yep. I said, mm, you know what? I changed my mind at the last minute. Good thing I did because picking it for this year's mixtape worked out much better because I got some inside information from Jean Lambros' podcast about what? the lead singer. Nice. <laughs> so it was good that I waited to choose The Politics of Dancing by Reflex.
1: Things happen for a reason. Spreading. station. station.
0: Oh, I love that song. That song's amazing. And I think that is actually a wonderful way to kick off a mixtape. You know, we talked last year about starting strong. I'm pretty sure that's a strong start to a Mm mixtape.
2: I think so. Absolutely. I like that
0: one. You do? Well, thanks. The funny
2: funny thing about starting a mixtape with this song is, you know, until... I have no recollection of this song from when it was actually out. I had no knowledge of this band. The only reason I learned about this band is because of a mix '80s compilation CD that you purchased.
0: That's right. At
2: some point, right after we got married or before, yeah, it was a band I'd never heard of, and I loved this song.
0: Yeah, and that's how I discovered it as well. Let's talk about the the past though, and when it was out for real in in the real world. First of all, I got to say. Wikipedia is not always right. Oh, yeah, (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Shocker. uh, Neither is the rest (laughs) of the Internet, but specifically Wikipedia. And that's usually my go-to place for the first source of research just because it's the easiest place to find stuff. Well, it tells me that the single for The Politics of Dancing, from the album of the same name, was released in February of 1983. But when I look at the chart history, that makes absolutely no sense, because it peaked on both the British and American charts in early 1984. So I'm pretty sure it was released in late 1983 in both the UK and maybe the US, maybe a little even, little later in the US. The album itself came out in November of 1983. Now I know sometimes singles precede albums, but yeah. not this. Did not precede it by an entire year. So fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this song did really well on both the British and American charts. It got to number twenty-eight on the U.S. on the UK single charts and number twenty-four on the Billboard Hot one hundred. It did even better on the Billboard Hot Dance Club play chart where it got to number eight. Nice. Yeah. And it did well in other countries too. The best position outside of those two countries was in Canada where it got to number nine. And the Aussies and the Kiwis really liked it too. They got to number 12 in Australia and in New Zealand.
2: Do you actually remember hearing the song on the radio?
3: I, I actually do. Yeah. Do you? I do not. As a matter of fact, uh, I recall dancing to it. Um, oh my gosh. Where? At a church camp. <laughs> <laughs> had this really? Awkward dance where, like, all the guys were on one side and all the girls were on the other, and like, oh, yeah. nobody was really dancing until they sort of everybody just started moving around a little bit. It wasn't, dancing is pretty much a, an exaggeration of what was happening, but yeah.
0: Oh, that's
1: cool. So and
2: John, did you do you have a memory of this being released back in 83? This is a single you were aware of?
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is one of my all-time favorite songs. I'm out of the loop. Um, yeah, I remember it very clearly from when I was a kid. The thing that I've always thought about this song is that it was a hit, but it wasn't such a ubiquitous hit that you grew tired of it. It was always welcome whenever it would come on the radio, which wasn't often enough being a number 24 hit or whatever right yeah so it never reached that status of being overplayed or you getting sick of it i have said and i told the lead singer baxter when i had him on my show that if i were ever invited to be on bbc's desert island discs this would be one of the songs that i would bring because to me it encapsulates the very best of what 80s music had to offer at the time The mixture of the—I'm sorry if I'm stealing your thunder here, Sarah. Oh, not at all. No. (laughs) The way that it's incorporating the synthesizers with the guitars, with the big drum beats— all the hallmarks of 80s music are coming together to in this fantastic, epic sounding single. It's a masterpiece.
2: I like your enthusiasm for it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I agree with you on a lot of those points. I don't know if I would go so far as to call it a masterpiece. I love it. I think it's a fantastic song and I think it does really showcase those elements of eighties music that you discussed. You know, the they do a great job of mixing the synths and the guitars, which, you know, it's a lot of times it's either one or the other. Right. And this is a wonderful combination.
2: I, l- I really like the sound of that guitar. I like how it's not just like power chord in its way through the song no. or something. It has a very nice sound. It's no. playing riffs that you could play on a keyboard, but they're just playing them on a guitar. Right. Instead, yep. it sounds really good.
0: There's a little type of a solo in the bridge. A little bit. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So this song was written by the keyboard player, backing vocalist, and band co-founder Paul Fishman. And as I mentioned, it's from the debut album of the same name. This album was produced by John Punter.
2: He was, and I think he is best known for uh, working with Brian Ferry or Roxy Music or something?
0: Yeah, both. Both them both? Um, and Japan and Slade and Procol Harem and the 1984 album by Pseudo Echo titled Autumnal Park. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh. But he is Another not former guest. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And I know that yeah. Brian is a big pseudo Echo fan. I don't know that he knows their 1984 album, but you might want to check it out now that you know that it was produced by the same guy. I think
2: some of those songs from that album were put on the American release of Love and Adventure.
0: Okay. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, John Punter is not doing music anymore. He is actually retired from music, and he's running a bar in Canada. Well, Just... Oh. Just fun, yeah, just a fun fact. And? You know, so we talk a lot about producers and, you know, like, oh, what are they doing now? Well, he's not doing anything with music. He probably plays it in his bar.
2: And the same might be yeah. said of The Reflex, unfortunately.
0: Well, that's not exactly true.
2: They have an online presence. Well, they do. Nice
0: yeah, but members of the band are still doing things, as I learned from listening to John's podcast and his... Uh, discussion with Baxter.
1: Yeah, I'll give you my opinion about that if you want to hear it. Well, of course. Okay. It sounded to me when I interviewed Baxter, and keep in mind, this was three years ago. Yeah, this was one of your
0: very early podcasts, it, one of your was. early episodes.
1: He implied that he's sort of a behind the scenes guy, you know, like a record label will hire him to sort of mentor or work with young artists to write songs or arrange or whatever. And that might be true. Something I have found as sort of a thread It goes through many of my interviews is that there are a lot of men who were once rock stars who probably are not all that gamefully employed anymore. And but their wives are and their wives pay the bills. Their wives probably thought they were marrying a rock star and it was going to be exciting forever. And in some cases, not everybody has that many marketable skills beyond doing music. I, I think about musicians as being similar to athletes. In that they work so hard growing up to be really good at what they do, and then they make the pros, and then maybe they're surrounded by hundreds of other people who are better than them. And their moment in the sun lasts, uh, you know, one season, and then they got to figure out what to do with the rest of their lives.
0: That's a really and good I, analogy.
1: Yeah. And I think that Baxter falls into that. I'm not saying that he's a bum or anything like that. I just don't know that it's the kind of thing where he has a job to do every single day. I think he might be there if someone needs him. Um, I think he probably has a wife who is the primary breadwinner in his family, and I think he probably tinkers. I know he works on some new music because he sent it to me, but is he gainfully employed? I don't know.
0: Okay.
2: That's a little bit unfortunate. I understand your analogy and, and I, I see that being true with with some with a lot of bands. Like I, I have listened to pseudo-echo albums other than love and adventure Uh, i think there was one called race that was like their next album and i thought that was really Mm -hmm. really lackluster and and i'm not sure that like pseudo echo for instance had what it takes to compete with these other better bands like you mentioned but because of the reflex making their entire catalog available themselves you can now hear like the two albums that they recorded as follow-ups to the Mm -hmm. politics of dancing which uh, I don't think ever got released. I think for their second album, a single got released, and I think mm-hmm. for the third album, nothing ever saw the light of day. And uh, both those albums are really, really good. I think, especially the third one, Jamming the Broadcast. I think that's almost as good as Politics of Dancing. It sort of peters out near the end a little bit, but I'm not saying they would have been major stars like like the Thompson Twins or something. But I, I sort of think they they could have been. Throughout the '80s, they could have ended up having maybe uh, in like the career quality of like mm-hmm. Howard Jones
4: yeah you know like one possibly. hit off of each album mm-hmm.
2: i don't know i just think they were a little better than what they, they had a chance to prove because it seemed from what baxter was saying they had a lot of trouble with the label they got screwed yeah. over a couple times
0: yeah
1: and that's true for probably 75 percent of the people that i talked to yeah. something out of their control some right. label issue that affects them that they had nothing to do with Yep. Yeah. yeah
0: yeah that was a shame but but thanks to your podcast we got to find out that all this stuff was available again because we had always heard rumors of a second album we wondered what you know where was it and how but then we Found oh, it's out there. We used and
2: to go to record shows and ask about it. Yeah, we did. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh wow. yeah. Yeah, and people would say like, "Oh, I remember seeing a single." And one guy claimed he remembered seeing the album, but yeah. I think it turned out he couldn't have. No. but mm. yeah, So that was yeah, awesome. So it was that really was one of my Christmas presents this past year, and yeah. it arrived on Christmas Eve because uh, Sarah got it from the website after hearing about it on your show. Yep. So That's thank great.
0: you, John. I was a big hero.
1: That's <laughs> so, so good for my ego. <laughs> yeah. Great. Now, speaking of, and again, sorry if I'm totally bum-rushing your moment here, Sarah, but speaking of when it was written and when it came out, uh, I I really think the Possible connection to the movie Footloose is very interesting uh, in relation to the sto- to the history or story of this song.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, you talked about that. He it seemed like I didn't know
1: if you were going to talk about it. No, I wasn't. I no, I oh, okay. I
0: really I was trying not to talk too much about um the show because I want people to go and seek it out. Oh. I kind of want to tease it, you know. If if you're willing to talk about it and kind of give some okay. of that away, that's up to you. I was kind of I will letting it up to. I'm like well, you should listen to this on the hustle. You know, I can the whole story. That yeah. was that was my thought. Well, so. thank
1: you. I'm fine. I'm fine doing it because I think this is really important. So there were rumors that I had always heard that this song was originally written for the movie Footloose. And if anyone has, I, I, we've all seen that movie. I don't know how well everyone remembers it. I've seen it a million times. The scene where they uh, where the girls after church. You know, Ariel does that thing where she's standing between the two cars. And they end up at the uh, drive-in, like, Tasty Freeze type place. And she puts a song in the boom box that everyone starts, of course, dancing to. That song is Dancing in the Sheets by Shalimar. Oh, man. Oh, okay. well, originally, supposedly, they had asked Reflex. And this song, Politics of Dancing, was meant to have been played on in that scene. Now... I asked Baxter that and he denied it. If you listen to both of those songs next to one another, I'm not a musician, so I don't know what the technical terms for all these things are, but they have a very similar beat structure. They sound very similar. Someone probably went to both of them and said, can you write a song in whatever time, you know, with these accoutrements? for this scene that we're doing and um, now he denied that but in a later email to me he intimated that he was either lying or kidding and that they did but he wasn't at liberty to tell me the full story so <laughs> I could be misreading that this song was likely written for the Footloose soundtrack and meant to be played during that scene
2: that would have been huge for them Yeah, that album sold so many copies yeah it, Ugly.
3: it was huge and I might have actually watched that movie during that time because <laughs> the Shalamar song was horrible of my opinion. <laughs> oh, I love that song
0: oh, I don't man. want to get it all it's so cheesy <laughs> oh man compared to this song which is not cheesy I like this song <clears throat> I think it's kind of like a pseudo-intellectual as far as the lyrical content because you know they're talking about politics and politicians and so you think oh well it's serious topics and it's kind of not really right <laughs>
2: well you know what may, they may not have made it onto Footloose but at least the the movie company or whatever you want to say the studio uh, gave them a chance to have a song on the soundtrack for the movie Breaking. <laughs> <laughs> and then the most unkind thing of all, they said, hey, we're going to use two of your songs in Superman 4, which is one of the worst movies ever made. Oh, and then really. they cut them out.
0: Oh, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't get yeah. to be associated with that movie, Jim. <laughs> nope. What a mm, shame. Too bad.
2: Yeah, yeah. We uh, could have seen Christopher Reeve fighting the nuclear man on the surface of the moon to the tune of jamming the broadcast
3: I still have never seen that movie
2: you never saw Superman 4 no
3: and wow. I don't really think my life is any poorer for it
2: your life is richer <laughs> for not seeing it but you should you should see it
3: oh man <laughs> well do you want to
0: talk about the music some more or would you like to move on to the video so let's c- move on to the video we could all move on to the video yeah it starts off with a message on the screen meanwhile the airwaves are humming with the sound of reflex radio who are transmitting from a secret hideout in the heart of the metropolis from far and wide the forces of of evil are gathering their mission to seek out and destroy the story continues yep this
2: this Ooh. put me in mind of stix's 1983 Effort Kilroy was here, which was like a <laughs> dystopian future where rock and roll was outlawed, and they had a broadcast from secret places. As soon as I saw that, I was like, "Oh, this is just like Sticks, Mr. Roboto."
0: Yeah, and in a way, I guess it is. And then it then it cuts into the video, and the, there's images of people posting signs on buildings and walls, and the phrase "Reflex Radio" is on them. And
2: which the band actually did in ex- real life to promote their
0: exactly. to promote themselves. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, they would go and they would spray graffiti and they'd put posters and signs up all over London, especially at record company headquarters because they were trying to build hype about the band and of course back then there was no internet and they they were just yeah. trying to be creative so that was what they did I don't know that it got them a lot of fans with the record company executives being you know vandalizing their buildings but eventually <laughs> it worked out for them so in in the video as this this one guy or there's maybe several people posting these signs up on posters then there's this mysterious man in Ray-Bans and he keeps going around and taking down the posters undoing the work that he's doing it's, it's kind of funny I like like that guy but there's a lot of different things going on in this video and one of my favorite things is the roller skaters
2: oh yeah that's a great addition to any early 80s video yeah always makes me think of xanadu classic
0: (laughs) yeah they're just you know they're coming down the the sidewalk and then they're going in circles and then they're going backwards and it's just oh man it's just tremendous and then we get some shots of this dj i put that in quotes who has glasses and a mustache, and. He is sometimes shown singing the song, and that's sort of a bit of a clue, because he's also the man pictured on the reflex radio posters that are being put up throughout the city. And in the end, they show a still image of him, and they remove the glasses, and they remove the mustache, and they change his hair. Oh, it's Baxter!
2: (laughs) Yep. And for many, many years... Even though I liked the Reflex, I sort of thought they looked lame because my memories of this video—I saw this video like in the '90s, I guess, after YouTube came around. So whenever that was, but I seem to have forgotten about the end of it. And so the guy who is the DJ with the big mustache yeah. and stuff—in my memory, he was the lead singer of the Reflex. That's how the guy like looked that, like.
0: That's just how he <laughs> always looked. So
2: even when I would listen to the album, I would still—I would feel a little guilty to myself, like the guy in this group looks so terrible.
0: <laughs> so, no. but this week, yeah,
2: I watched it again, and I yeah. was like. Like, oh, I missed that at the end. <laughs> the <laughs> it, big reveal. It's disguise. He doesn't. So yeah. I was actually relieved.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because he's much cooler looking. You know, he's got the spiky blonde tipped hair and everything, you know, just what you would expect for a guy of that time.
2: Because when I was listening to John's episode with Baxter, I was picturing, because I hadn't seen them yet, yeah. the <laughs> box said, I pictured a guy with a big, huge mustache that you were talking to.
0: <laughs> yeah, because he hasn't changed at all. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. So that's funny. Another great thing about the video is the one guy, I guess it might be Paul fishman i'm not sure he's the keyboardist yeah so he's the one that has the keyboards like on either side of him and then there's one in front of him and then sometimes he's playing keyboards with each hand which is like super great you know he's playing the right one with his right hand and the the left one with his left hand and oh my gosh he must be really talented so (laughs) it's just it's very impressive paul schaefer yeah exactly (laughs) yeah so it's just i think it's a super fun 80s video. It has a bit of a story to it, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, and it looks very 80s, of course, and but it's 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 pretty good. It's not I don't think they should be terribly embarrassed about it.
3: You missed the best part of that video. The be- what was oh, that? Well, tell me. The attractive women moving figures around on that very important board of strategy. Oh, that's right. <laughs>
0: that's that's right. I did forget that part. Yeah, you want to talk right. some more about that. Well,
3: that's 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 really the only thing like I I was just reviewing that video and I was like, oh, I remember I remember these chicks moving these things around having no idea what they could possibly be doing. Well, <laughs> but it looks really important. It's visually oh, yeah.
0: representing how the broadcast is spreading from station to station, you right. know? They're right. they're spreading the word. Nice that's Bowie true. reference
2: right there by the yeah. way. Yeah, well, right. is station it station to station.
0: <laughs> Is it? Baxter wasn't sure. It was. I'm sure it must have been. I thought so. It's one of those things you probably didn't even think you were doing, but you were.
2: Aren't you a big Level 42 fan, John? I
1: am, yeah. I love Level 42. And uh, their frontman, Mark King, was in a very early version of Reflex, which I didn't know. I thought it was fascinating.
0: Yeah, this, this band had a little bit of a Spinal Tap thing going on where they had a whole bunch of drummers In a pretty short period of time. Luckily, they didn't lose the drummers under like really bad and mysterious circumstances, like like (laughs) a spinal tap. But yeah, two of the drummers were actually Phil Gold and Mark King, who went on to be in level 42. Of course, Mark Mm -hmm. King decided not to play drums anymore. Well, I think he sold his drum kit, so then he couldn't play drums, and so became the bass player instead. That's right. And Phil Gold was the drummer.
2: Very
1: true. Yep.
2: Well, that's the first song for the mixtape, I think. And we're going to move on to song number two, which... Everyone will be very happy to hear is my choice. So that means, of course, we've got to go back into the world of Mr. Vincent Clark for a song called Never Never by a group called The Assembly. Here's a little sample.
4: And it ends up the same. I know the story, got it all worked out. Never happens to me.
2: So that song was released the very last day of October in 1983, and it peaked at number two in Sweden, number four in the UK and Norway, number five in Switzerland, number six in Ireland, and of course, made no chart progress here in the United States. Mm. Poor Vince.
0: (laughs) He couldn't catch a break.
2: So did anybody remember this song from
3: back in the day? No, I vaguely remember it. Do you? But that's as best as I can say is that it's not unfamiliar to me. Okay. No, I did not. But it
1: also put me to sleep, and so I might, um, (laughs) I I may be misremembering because I couldn't get through the entire song. without Dozing off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love how you are just brutally honest from the get go. Uh, Wonderful.
1: No, of course,
2: of course, my goal in my life is to talk about every single Depeche Mode song. In a podcast, mm-hmm. and to talk about every single Vince Clark song in a podcast, mm-hmm. and the assembly was so short lived that that's why I wanted to talk about this here on the on the mixtape. So the assembly was actually two people. Yes, two people that that I think we all know and love, Mr. Vincent Clark from Erasure, Yaz, and Depeche Mode. Right, and Eric Radcliffe. Yes, who is E C Radcliffe? Who yes. is the guy? that Yaz was upstairs at Eric's. It was his place.
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: So he was an engineer slash producer who worked with Vince on developing his sound early in Vince's career, and Vince and him really liked working together. So the plan was the assembly was going to be these two guys in the studio writing songs and then get a different singer for each track.
0: Right. It was almost like an anthology in a way. Sort
2: of. So this was the first song they released, and the singer is an Irish singer named Fergal Sharkey. Yeah. who was the lead singer of a, a pop punk band called The Undertones. Right. And they had a big song called Teenage Kicks, which is not really the kind of music that I want to listen to, but they have another oh, one called... they're so good. You like them? Yep.
1: I love The Undertones. And his solo stuff is also really good. And you may like it more. It's less punky, more new wavy.
2: Yeah, I I used to have one of his albums on cassette uh, Mm -hmm. when I was growing up. I don't have it anymore. I think it had that song, A Good Heart, on it, which was a big number one hit across Europe. So The Assembly, Very Little, was was really released under their name. Vince, at the same time, was also doing something that I think is interesting. He was involved with a record label called Reset Records that he founded with, again, Eric Radcliffe. A bunch of singles came off of that record label. Robert Marlowe, who was a, a friend of Vince's growing up, released four singles. He had a song... That was kinda of famous, uh, called The Face of Dorian Gray. Smooth white skin, just like
4: a shroud, is a subtle young savage with lips that yearn and eyes that make the canvas burn.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: And part of the thing that's really famous about that is that only singles came out in the 80s, and it wasn't until like in the late 90s that the album actually was released long after the fact. Mm-hmm. hmm And a few other bands, including one called Absolute, which I just discovered when we were doing our Erasure podcast okay. with, with Andrew. They, a, they have a song called TV Glare. But
4: it's all a dream I will never be To hold to love, to kiss all I said, said
2: Is amazing
0: I do not know mm. that band or that song but if you're saying it's amazing I may have to check it out
2: it is I've been playing okay. it in my car all week so why was there only one assembly single
0: because they got bored <laughs> <laughs> they fell asleep Vince once again couldn't keep his attention span directed towards one project for a while
2: that's um, kind of true that is kind of true basically at the end of this one year period 83 into 84 vince essentially admits defeat on the assembly by placing the ad that eventually brings andy bell to him to form erasure but he said really the reason he lost interest in it was because he had a lot of difficulty finding singers he said people imagine because we're professional musicians we're all hanging out with each other and it's like a big happy family where we all know each other well
0: and we talk about things like that on the podcast well they know this guy and this guy knew this person. and it, I mean, it well, does seem like that. Seem that like there's that. a lot of connections there. But, but guess- Vince said,
2: I really didn't know anybody else. And he <laughs> said that, that a few people that he knew that were singers turned him down. What? And then a, a couple other ones had contractual issues. Uh, Their labels wouldn't let them appear on you his know, song. You
0: know, I believe that very much. That that would be a... a
3: That's something that uh, I'm going to have to address again next week about oh. Vince Clark not knowing anybody uh-huh. because uh, somebody begs to differ. But
2: Okay. alright yeah we'll see about that he also could not get the producer he wanted he seems uh, very comfortable working with Daniel Miller it seems like yeah. Vince early on in his, his career sort of wanted to stay in the, the atmosphere yeah. that he was already comfortable with yeah. like he always wanted to work in Blackwing Studios like that was which is the, really small
0: the only studio he knew so and that was the studio he
2: always he wanted to work again with Daniel Miller but Daniel Miller was off working with Depeche Mode on Construction Time again
0: well gee whiz
2: so Vince couldn't get as much of his time as he would have liked so he said and this is quote the result was that we spent a year in the studio hanging around writing songs preparing for the assembly album which never materialized and in the end i was just sick of the studio we started to do the next single we couldn't get the right singer so myself and eric took our synths and went home it was really a bad time oh. it was a year wasted and it made me feel very lethargic because we hadn't actually got anything finished
0: that might explain oh. the song john <laughs> yeah
2: possibly <laughs> Speaking of lethargy. well now, you- Brian,
1: let me ask you was Fergal, not the lead singer of. Did he not sing every track on the. It's just an EP, right? Isn't it just four songs?
2: It's only two songs. There's the single version of this song, an extended version, and then there's the B side, and then an extended version of the B side. And the B side's just an instrumental. Uh, Okay. So he really didn't sing much. So yeah, he only sang the one song. And if you thought this song was slow and boring, John, there is another (laughs) song that came out in 84 and did absolutely nothing. Even in England. Which loved Vince Clark? It peaked at number ninety nine, and I'm pretty sure it was an assembly song that he just managed to scrape together. But it was released just under the name of Vince Clark and Paul Quinn. Oh yeah, they didn't call it the Assembly.
0: I think you did mention that, in maybe the uh, Wonderland episode. Maybe
2: yeah, I think yeah, I think I did. Yeah, it's called One Day, and that song is super slow and super boring. <laughs> okay, so yeah, so I don't think- go listen
0: to it unless you are, have insomnia. <laughs> so I, I think will. that's
2: Vince realized at that point he needed a proper band for consistent labeling and this kind of idea, a, a potpourri of things is not going to work.
0: Early Vince cracks me up because he is just so stubborn and like upset with everything. Like He didn't want to be in Depeche Mode because <laughs> nope. he, he wanted to be in the studio. He didn't want to tour. He left Laz- Yazoo because he didn't want to tour with her right. and he wanted to be in the studio making music. So then he gets a year to do that and he's like, you know what, I don't want to do this either. So he just sounds rather <laughs> un- unsatisfied on mm-hmm. all levels.
2: Very true. So the assembly, I, I- I have no recollection of of it from the time I I learned about the assembly after 1985 when I got into erasure with Wonderland. I looked for it everywhere because I didn't really even understand what it was. I didn't know if there was an album or what the story was. And I just happened to find it one day. I was at, like, with a lot of the albums that I love. I was with my grandmother. Yes, and I was at her mall, which had two great record stores: Joe Nardone's Gallery of Sound, ah, which yeah. always had Depeche Mode imports, and then another mm-hmm. one, which was like a chain. But then in the center of the mall, there was a little kiosk, you know, like these little stands that spring up that like sell, yeah, sausage and stuff like that. Sometimes <laughs> around Christmas, it was just this little stand, and he had records and like in milk crates. And I was going through a milk crate, and he had the assembly, and it was for a dollar.
0: Wow! Oh, and wow. I
2: was like, oh, I can't believe this is here. And you know what record was like two records past it that i also got that i
0: could never begin to guess no idea
2: (laughs) the austrian slickmeister falco (gasps) his debut album Einzelhaft.
0: oh did you pick that up at the same time yep i did wonderful score
2: yep but it was it was a rough weekend because my grandmother didn't have a turntable so i had to wait till we went back home to listen (laughs) to you just stared at
3: the albums your grandmother was ahead of the times by getting rid of her turntable
2: So the record's cool, the label is cool, it's very simple, it's just like a stylized A, it's all red and white, no pictures or anything, but it looks kind of cool. So I think it's a good song, regardless of what you guys say, I enjoy listening to it, but I think it's probably my least favorite of every other Vince Clark single. I think I would probably put this at the very end, except for maybe Erasure Song Star.
0: Oh, you do hate that song. I do hate that song. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd much rather listen to that than this.
2: Not me musically. Yeah. If this had to appear on an album, if like someone said, like, what album of Vince's does this sound the most like? Yeah, I would say You and Me Both by Yaz. Hmm, mm, probably. Okay, especially that keyboard solo in the mid middle section of the song. Yeah,
0: I can see that.
2: A lot of the guitar on here is sampled into the Fairlight keyboard
0: ah, the and played Fair-
2: note for note, which oh. I think is neat. Mm-hmm. There is some real guitar, evidently. Uh huh. And here's the last thing I want to say about it. Virgo Sharky's voice is kind of strange. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: that might be an understatement. Actually,
3: when I was when I was listening to this, it, it vaguely kind of reminds me of uh, the character from uh, Rocky Horror.
1: Oh. Like the the lips that sing the intro song exactly exactly.
3: <laughs> so it's the guy that wrote the Rocky Horror Show um, okay. that Richard does O'Brien. that does that song. That's that's the name I couldn't remember. What but was yeah. the name? Richard O'Brien.
0: Richard O'Brien. There's okay. something
3: reedy like his voice.
0: I think he sounds like a Muppet. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I've never liked his voice. I'm sorry. I Hmm. I don't like it. I never have, never, never, never have, never will. (laughs) (laughs)
2: And then, John, you are a fan of his voice, just not in this song.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've I've tried to get him on my show, but he's uh, purposely very off the grid. I've Hmm. never been able to find him. And I've asked people who might know him, and they're like, oh, good luck. You probably won't ever find him. Oh, no, really? So, yeah, he's pretty much disappeared. But um, Crazy. it's not, I I understand, yes, uh, no one sounds like Fergal, and maybe that's a good thing for a lot of people. I don't think that it's the kind of voice that you can apply to every song, and it sounds great. It doesn't annoy me or anything. Um, and I don't hate this song. This song is just pretty sleepy and unspecial, if that's a word. There's really nothing noteworthy or interesting or provocative about this song. I would never put it on repeat or anything like that. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely would not. Now,
2: now even though I said uh, his voice is strange, I thought it was strange for many years, but I'm now very comfortable with it. I think he's a pretty good singer. I just don't think he's as good as Alison Moyet. Yeah, well, Very few people are as good as right. Alison Moyet. But True. here's
0: here's what I think is weird, and I'm probably the only one that thinks this, but the backing vocals kind of remind me of Alison Moyer.
2: No, I actually have a note on that. Okay. Okay. Um, I think they sound very much like her. Okay. And I saw one article about the song that said... Vince sang those background vocals which I rarely have known Vince to sing. He doesn't. Just on the song I think Happy People or something, but I then saw an interview with Mr. Sharkey who he said that it was he was singing the background vocals and it, that it was his idea to make the background vocals sound very deadpan and put that weird filter on it uh-huh. because he thought it was funny that like the song is is very pleading and emotional uh-huh. and then the background vocals come on and just That's sound the like
0: way it has to be. Yeah, and very just, deadpan. Oh, so, okay. it,
2: according to him that was him singing. Oftentimes I think they sound a lot like yeah. how Yeah, Hmm. I've talked for quite a bit, so I'm going to just briefly go through the video. There's not much to the video. It's two segments. One one part I think is interesting, which is probably the smaller part. Uh, A lot of it is is just the band acting moody, singing the song. It's all
0: very, very moody and angsty, and black and
2: white. Yeah, and they're sort of like hanging around (laughs) like a windmill.
0: Yeah, there's a windmill. <laughs> uh,
2: but you also see then some shots of like working class families who seem to have lots of children. Yeah. And, and I don't know if this is true, but they seem to be in one of the quote modern cities that I read. Really, oh. When I read my the book yeah. about Depeche Mode's early days and when I read Bernard Sumner's book about his life, they talked about how after the Second World War, the big kick in England was to build these cities of the future, where right. it was going to be within driving, driving distance of London and give families an opportunity to live in new buildings and raise families but what they did was they built these very sterile um, sterile glass and metal Mm multi-stories you don't have a house anymore you live like in a a in a
0: room in a big box right
2: and it looks Mm -hmm. like these people have set up a trailer in front of buildings that look very much like that and the the music stars vince clark and and um ec Radcliffe and singer they're going around looking like gloomy skeletons and (laughs) uh, (laughs) but the, the part of the video that really impacted me was at the end we see these families who have have too many kids i'm sure for what you know they can afford and they're living somewhere they don't want to live, and they look so frustrated. The, the mom and dad both are just grimacing, and the kids are sitting there being forced to post for this picture. And the lyric says, it never happens to me. It never happens to me. Maybe that's the way my life was meant to be. And I just like felt—I'm watching this video just to do this silly podcast, and I was starting to actually feel emotional for these people who are probably the actors. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow. oh, that's so sad. You, you could see the bitterness in their faces and the unhappiness in their faces as you hear that lyric. And I was like— yeah, there's not much to this video, but for this 10 second segment, well done, well done.
1: Mm. You've really thought a lot about this video, far more than probably anyone ever has. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. First of all, no one has made it has stayed awake through the entire thing. <laughs> 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 Poor Nor Vince Clark. Thought about it so deeply. No, sure. Clark,
3: That's what never maybe, happens. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. The one thing I have to say about the video and, and in particular, Virgil, remi- I knew he reminded me of somebody when I when I saw his face. I'm like, who is he look like? He looks like somebody. And I finally figured it out. And I showed Brian this morning. He said, Oh, my gosh, yes, I agree. He looks like Robin Colcord from Cheers, who is played by Roger oh, Reese." Yes. <laughs> oh, wow. My- And if you look, I'm telling you what, you go do a Google search on both of those gentlemen. I mean, you can't do it together. That didn't work. But. Do one and then the other, and you will say, "Oh my gosh, they were separated at birth." So that is
1: huge. <laughs> I've been trying to think of the same thing for years. Who does Fergal yeah. look like? And yeah. that is it. That's it. Oh, I, yes. I, I nailed it for you. <laughs> That's so funny.
0: Yeah. Now that you can. Is, now you can sleep at night.
1: I can Well, and I'll put this song on the wall. We'll, well. Oh man. Perfect.
2: Well, you know what? You you old folks can sit around and make fun of the song, but me and the younger generation who, who grew up with oh. this song from hearing it in Grand Theft Auto, Vice City oh. Stories soundtrack album, we're going to continue to love the assembly. Me and the young kids. All right, so we're, we're up to song number three, and that, Colby, is your song.
3: Well, we're getting to the good stuff now, so... Um, <laughs> I I kid. Sarah's song actually is good. Um, Thank you. Oh, man. My group is one that I think really should be a mark of shame for the Permanent Record podcast that they haven't actually been talked about in terms of like an episode directed completely about how awesome they are. And we're, we're actually about-
2: running out of room for marks of shame here on, <laughs> here on the podcast.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and we're talking about Ultravox. Um, the thing that's cool about Ultravox is that there's actually kind of two versions of them. Uh, the first version of Ultravox was in that strange period before... New wave. Uh, Punk was starting to get tired in England. The sound of the old Ultravox, headed by John Fox, was very guitar-driven. There was a lot of fast-paced stuff. And then out of the blue, John Fox decides he's done. He leaves. The main guitarist for the band decides he's done, takes off with some woman he was falling in love with. And this, by the way, was just something I heard on the first wave. Um, They were interviewing mid-year just this weekend. The band was pretty much done. They came back from a mini tour, and they had a note from the label that said that their services were no longer required. Ouch. And... Mm. There was a guy that they knew, uh, they had worked with a little bit from a band called uh, Visage. Not the way I'd pronounce it, but that's the way he does. So they were famous for the track Fade to Grey, which apparently he got a lot from the Ultravox musicians to put that Mm -hmm. track together. So Midjir gets together with them and then they very quickly put music together and went out for their first album. But the second album, they had uh, decided they were going to work very intensely. They got three months in a studio in Germany to work with uh, Conrad Connie Plank, who is famous for working with bands like Kraftwerk. Um, Suddenly my brain just shut off.
2: If you work with Kraftwerk, you don't really have to have anyone else in your resume in my opinion. <laughs> so you can leave it at that.
3: They spent 3 months kind of isolated working on this album. One of the biggest in my mind, one of the biggest uh, uh, triumphs out of this was the song The Voice. I,
4: I've seen
3: So that is uh, the voice. uh, Midyear talked about the fact that in three months working on that album, uh, they didn't have a whole lot of contact. Probably one of the more interesting things that happened to them is that they just got bored at one point and went out dressed in World War II outfits (laughs) in Germany (laughs) and got really, really drunk. And like, apparently nobody bothered them. They just thought that they were like actors or something.
0: Were (laughs) they dressed as British soldiers? I think so. Okay. Wow, so they they were just looking for something to do and yep. wow, okay.
3: And so that all happened 80 to 81 Rage in Eden was the album it got released in 81. The voice was actually released in October of 1981 and it peaked at uh, number 16 in the UK. Had it do in
2: the US? Didn't. Uh,
0: and you wonder why we're not talking about them. Well, that's yeah. why. <laughs> Just kidding.
3: So the members uh, in the band were uh, Warren Cann, Billy Curry, Chris Cross, the three C's as I like to call them. <laughs> and Warren's, he's a drummer. And the thing that's interesting is that I never knew, I listened to Ultra Fox in the 80s. I thought they were a drum machine band, but they played with live drums. I didn't no. know. Uh, my exposure to Ultravox, like I didn't know about them back in the early, early 80s when they were successful in England, much like everybody else in America. Yeah. I came to know them from the album, the collection that was released in 84. So it was about 85 that I actually started to try to dig into the Ultravox stuff.
2: Is that one you stole from your sister? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that.
3: Yeah. So I liked all the stuff that was in that. It spanned pretty much exclusively the mid-year era okay. of Ultravox. So there wasn't anything. I didn't even realize there was a whole another iteration of the band before that.
2: Yeah. I just learned about that a month ago. Right. In the two issues ago in Classic Pop Magazine, they had a review for John Fox's first solo album. It's being re-released as a three-disc deluxe edition. And as I was reading the, re- the review, I was like, wait, there was a, a singer in Ultravox before Midge? I had no clue. And then this past week, some... Somebody sent me a link to What Have I Got in My Bag starring um, From Aviva well, Gary Records Newman, right? Gary Newman Yeah yeah. He was in a record store just kind of going through the record store selling what albums he loved yeah. and he talked about Ultravox He was uh, a fan of the first version of Ultravox right. and less so of the second one So in, in one month's time this has come up three times for me now and before, <laughs> before then I never knew this
3: Yeah, it's kind of crazy I mean, it, when you really listen to that first version compared to the mid-year stuff it is night and day They're nothing alike Crazy I think there's actually a third
1: version of Ultravox 2. So a couple of weeks ago I went to a hair metal concert here in Denver. It was enough z enough opening for the bullet boys and enough's enough is one of these like they're basically like a hard rock slash power pop band from the late 80s early 90s uh sounds similar to like cheap trick mixed with poison or whatever you know kind of one of those hair metal bands but a little poppier anyway one of the members of the band was this really good looking guy with short hair not the long hair that you normally see on the hair on the hair metal bands had a beard and he looked very handsome and when he was being introduced enough's enough lead singer Chip enough said Right. To my whatever, right? You know him from his time in Ultravox. And I thought, this guy was in Ultravox? That can't be. So I look, <laughs> this is a little funny story. So I immediately go to Wikipedia on my phone at the concert. And I look him up. And his name is Tony Finelli I believe. <laughs> and he took over after Midge left and sang on only one album, which I have not heard, called Revelation, which came out in like 1992. Wow! Oh, wow. He did some work with The System, Don't Disturb This Groove. I've had their main guy on my show. Anyway, I'm looking at my... I'm just like, I cannot believe that the guy in this hard rock band was also an Ultravox. I got to find him and get him on my podcast. (laughs) I'm on the... I look up from having... I've been on the phone for like four or five minutes now trying to research this guy. I look up and a topless woman is being escorted off the stage. (laughs) And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the entire time that I was on my phone, I could have been looking at a naked woman dancing with enough you know, stuff, and
3: I missed it. That's dedication to your craft, that, sir. That, that that, that's what I'm, saying. <laughs> what I'm saying. Hey,
2: you recently had the lead singer of the Bullet Boys on your show, and although I didn't know any of their songs and they're not really a band I would listen to, he was a really nice guy.
1: He was. And, and I,
2: did you get to meet I, him at the, at the concert? no.
1: It's kind of annoying. I um, So I know the guy who does the sound at the venue they played, and he put me on the guest list, thankfully. So I got in for free. And I told Mark, the lead singer of the Bullet Boys, a couple days ahead of time, I said, hey, I'm going to the show on Wednesday night. Can I poke my head in and say hello? And he or his wife, whoever replied to the email, saying, yeah, we'll put you on the VIP list. I got there and I was not on the VIP list. Uh, so Picky forgot or whatever. Thankfully, I already was getting in for free because of my friend. No, he was a nice guy. Uh, I think he I, I, he doesn't seem like who's on his VIP list might be a big concern of his. Yeah, I don't know. Right. Sorry, Colby. No, no worries. I mean, and we just was,
2: we, we needed to talk some hair just metal. A
3: riff. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: sorry. I just thought it was interesting that a guy would have been in both bands.
2: Yeah, that's that kinda of crazy. A weird yeah. combination. Before no. we talk about the video, can I tell you something about this song? Please do. I didn't know the song until you told me to go listen to it. Okay. Although I do have the greatest hits. And I basically only ever listen to like the same songs that you always hear on the radio. So I'm not sure why I bought the greatest hits if I'm not gonna listen to the other tracks. So I listened to it and this is a great song.
3: It is a great and song.
2: And it almost has like a, a progressive rock feel to it to me. Like, it doesn't sound like 80s pop.
3: So that's the Connie Plank influence there. Okay. Just backing up a moment when I'm responding to this. I'm trying to do research on Ultravox. I tried to join an Ultravox fan forum who never approved me. Um, but when I, was, when I was reading through a lot of back stuff, there were people that were talking about you know ultravox possibly waxing a little progressive, but that was actually the exact opposite of the intent of music as a whole at the time in England, like progressive oh, yeah. rock was something that people were trying to get away from, right, which is why they were turning to keyboards in the first place and just sort of focusing on that synthesizer sound and trying to be more clean and more sterile and less. Progressive. Yeah. Connie Plank apparently was really, really into some of that progressive stuff. And so there's elements that sound like it. So it's kind of interesting you picked up on that. Yeah.
2: I think it's really obvious. Another thing that I thought is. I'm hearing the sounds of of music of 1981. There are the components of this song, almost every component sounds like 1981, but they're put together in a way that does not sound like 1981. Right. It's, it sounds like nothing that I've heard from that era, from that year. It doesn't sound like Devo. It doesn't sound like Soft Cell. I mean, I may oh. have those years wrong.
3: Connie worked with Devo. That's another one. Oh,
2: did he? <laughs> So I was really impressed That's by this song. That's even tune. more
0: interesting. Then. And I
2: like this song better than some of the songs that I bought that greatest hits to have in my collection. I think this is a, is a great song.
3: So the, the other thing that I was going to say earlier, and I totally forgot, when uh, they finished that first album, the big, huge, resounding hit that everybody seemed to love was a song called Vienna. It still got some notoriety. Just uh, recently, the Netflix show 13 Reasons Why, in a very, very climactic moment, it played that uh, remix of the song song Vienna. Cool. And at the time, you know, this was a very new direction for Ultravox. This song Vienna's taken off in the airwaves and all this kind of stuff and all the record companies from other countries want them to like make another Vienna. They like the Paris people wanted them I mean the French people wanted them to make Paris. There were Jap- oh. Japanese record exec asking them to make a Tokyo. <laughs> and they were like, uh, the last thing in the world that that band wanted to do was anything anybody asked them to do. And that's why they went off with this guy in Germany and to be sort of isolated from everything and just do exactly what they wanted to do. The things that I always come back to from Ultravox that I like the most are from this album. Oh, okay. I mean, there's other stuff that, that, that they did later in the 80s, but they, they only had really about a six-year run. Before things started to fall apart, and part of that is because Midyear got tied up into the Band Aid thing. Like him and Bob Geldof are the ones mm-hmm. that's, that created right. it. He he actually has taken responsibility for some of that falling apart. They actually got back together about ten years ago. They they did a little bit of touring and stuff like that, and then the old wounds came back and they fell apart again. Midyear's back on his own. But uh, the interesting thing to me is that out of a six-year run, they came up with kind of a massive thing in England, and never once. Really took off here in the States over the 80s, right? Colby, have you read Midge's book if I was so after you mentioned it uh, when we were kind of communicating a little bit before we got together, I went out and downloaded it and Mm. uh, I was scanning it specifically to try to find references to the voice. And that's where, you know, I read about them getting drunk and getting in soldiers uniforms and stuff like that. He's a he's a very interesting guy.
1: I like him a lot. I read that book five or six years ago, so I don't remember it very well. But it is one of my very favorite rock autobiographies of of anyone that I've ever read. And I, I like Midger and I'm an Ultravox fan. I'm not like a super fan. So this isn't a super fan trying to kind of convert you to something. This is just as someone who likes rock books, autobiography specifically, it is so great. And the reason I love I love it is because he answers everything you would want to know, you know, he doesn't pull any punches. He's honest about everything. But one thing that was really interesting is near the end of that book, which was published, I don't know, 15 years ago, probably he explains why he doesn't do 80s nostalgia shows. Oh, really? Now he does a lot of 80s nostalgia shows, (laughs) which is great. I mean, I I love those things. I understand why artists don't want to do them, but I'm grateful that he does. You know, he's going to be here with Paul Young in a couple of months on a co-headlining tour. That's like heaven. Right. You
3: know? Yeah, he actually uh, just last year released an album called Orchestrated, where he got together with a— Symphony? There we go. (laughs) (laughs) The words are not coming out of my mouth today. But uh, yeah, he uh, redid a lot of his Ultravox songs. I listened to a couple of them. They are (laughs) really, really well done. Are
2: they? Yeah. John, you said you saw him on Retro Futura, right, with Tom Bailey and Howard Jones?
1: Yes, and that was actually really annoying, because if I remember correctly, he sang three songs, I think. He sang five when we saw him. Yeah. Maybe it was five. I thought it was three. Either way, when you saw him, was he and I saw him again on another tour where he did this. He was like everything was through the electric guitar. Like he was really heavy rock ish. Uh, it wasn't so the, I don't so recall I took, that. Really? So when I saw him, I took my brother and brother in law, and neither of them knew who they who he was. And I was like, Oh, you'll know like all these songs, no problem. But he performed them with like heavy, heavy metal guitars. Wow. Yeah and he did another tour. I think I think I've seen him twice now where once it was him acoustic, once it was him electric, and then I think he did another one that was called like electronic where it was him doing it through the synthesizers. Anyway, it felt almost like he was trying to prove what a great musician he is, and he is. But that is just isn't how you want to hear those songs, right? You know. Yeah. I
2: was struck when we saw him; like he wasn't all heavy, heavy metalish. When we saw him on Retro Futura, he came out after Katrina and the Waves and China Crisis. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I was struck by the the night and day quality. I would like, this man is a rock star. Like he walked on yeah. stage and and, and the, he commanded the place. Like you sure saw did. basically two bar bands like right. before him yep. and and. It was amazing. Like his presence was amazing. His yeah. stage presence.
0: It was a palpable difference in yeah. the room as he took the stage. It was. It was really very impressive and and very cool to see. You know yep. we. Yeah. We're used to either seeing one or the other. You don't see that transition happening as you're seeing multiple acts. It's either you know you're going to see somebody awesome or you know you're going to see somebody that's so sell. And to uh-huh. see the difference in one night was, was really cool. Well,
3: I think that in order for a, a person to come in, like apparently when he came into Ultravox, he had had some success with another band, but it was... He was a m- thin Lizzy. He was extremely <laughs> minor. His success was extremely minor in his mind right. compared to the band he was joining. And yet... He totally transformed them. I mean, mm-hmm. all of those guys that are in that band, very, very excellent musicians in their own right. But like the direction that they went in obviously took a very big departure. Yep. Maybe some of that was their own inclination as well. But I mean, he had a major part in that. And that's, that's difficult. Can you imagine going into a group of people that are established and considered to be big boys in the block compared to you? And yet your influence on them totally transforms them. I mean, yeah. that's, mm. and that's when he was young. So, right. In any case, the, the uh, does anybody have anything that they wanted to talk about about this song before I talk about the video?
0: Um, I'll just mention that that's interesting that there's an orchestral album of a lot of these songs, because I think it, just hearing this song, it easily lends itself to an orchestral version, because it's just so atmospheric and soaring, the, the keyboards that are kind of like strings, you uh-huh. know, coming over the top. It's just, it's very grand. Yeah, so good I, word. Yeah, I, I really, really like that sound, and it, it is a very ultra-voxy sound to me. Yeah. You mm-hmm. hear that in their other songs, but... Yeah, I, I can see why you'd want to just convert it to kind of organic instruments.
3: And one of the major songwriters in Ultravox, Billy Curry, was a violinist. Like, he was very, very, very sort of pushed towards strings. So the fact that he wrote stuff that kind of lends itself that way is not really much of a surprise. I definitely like the stuff that got converted in the orchestrated album. In any case, the the video, there's... I, I mentioned when we were just sort of talking about different videos. Uh-huh. Uh, I think you said you had to, uh, one with two videos or...
0: Oh, no, that's John. Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. Well, this one has one and a half because uh, one of the things that's on YouTube is a really terribly shot video um, (laughs) because they apparently, last minute, got on a German variety show. I think it was called Bananas Musica. It's them. It almost looks like they're in soldier uniforms. Okay. On this strange, Mm. slanted stage. And I almost think that maybe it's kind of a sort of joke about the time that they got plastered when they were recording it. Mm. But in any case... It's just them over and over again walking into this room that's sort of slanted and taking poses and singing along to the song, and it's awful. <laughs> and a lot of people thought that that was the actual video Ew. because that's what's on YouTube, and it's like, no, no, they actually did have some production value in the real video. <laughs> I,
0: I didn't. I think I might have seen that one in the results, but the one I watched was not that one.
3: Right. That's
1: what I watched first
2: because
3: I, I said that. That's to you the
1: yesterday. only one. I. That's the only one I saw. Them standing slanted in fact i thought oh isn't this cute (laughs) these guys have found some fun little trick like the lionel richie dancing on the ceiling right except it didn't
3: move (laughs) yeah
1: so (laughs) let's just let's just exploit this one trick for the full four (laughs) minutes of the song and just keep people wondering what's really going on here right i thought oh that's cute and innocent you know how innocent we all were back then. Uh...
3: no the actual video is all you know Big, it, huge, heavy words coming across the screen and fire and lots of people in sort of lynch mob, I mean, lynch mob, uh, flash mob type moves. And yeah, it's um, an expensive
2: but, looking video. Yeah, it yeah. had to it cost.
3: And so it money.
0: looks like it has a plot.
3: Yeah, I have no idea what it is,
0: but, <laughs> kind of, but there's
3: it, something going it, on there. It,
0: it <laughs> seems like, at least at one point in the time, the character Majora is playing is is like convicted or he's being put on trial. Right and there are all these different forces that are leading him to end up where he is and i think that's what the big words are that are coming across the screen because we see the press we see the people we see command uh i think it was or something like that but he there and there's like a part where he's on it's a silhouette and he's like someone's like pointing at him and it looks like maybe he's on trial and he's being sentenced and then eventually we see him in a an electric chair, right? No, no, that's the wrong video. Never mind. Did you <laughs> That's a different video. Never mind. Now, uh, did
2: you guys realize that the video that Colby sent us to watch is backwards? Was it? Yeah, the oh. the link that you sent for this real production heavy nice video. Right. Yeah. For some reason The label made them remove it so a fan took it and ran the video in reverse and put the audio in over top of it and for some reason that made it so that the copyright holders software didn't find it oh wow so i i found it on what's the other music uh, video site vimeo or something yeah i found it there and watched it because when you're watching it nobody is lip syncing like people are moving their mouths but it never goes with the lyrics so it was bugging me so then i watched it on this other site. And it goes the complete reverse way and all the words go with the mouths and stuff and the story goes back. Like, Mm. like, he's on trial first and then he sort of seems to be sentenced to join the army.
0: Oh, is that? Mm. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. It was weird. Yeah. Hmm.
2: I don't know what, you're still running the audio the right way. It seems like a music copyright holder software would search for music, not video. But the people in the comment section claim that this is the only way to have it on YouTube right now because of... Hmm.
0: Well, it's weird because I think on the Ultravox Vivo site or whatever, like, there's only two minutes of the video, and right. then it cuts off. Yeah,
3: for whatever reason, in the comments, he even stated state something like that. Like, why is there only two minutes? When I found that other one, and I found what I thought was the full version, I was only checking to see that the so- song was there. I wasn't even right. looking.
0: Huh. Yep. Well, I'm going to have to go look at the one on Vimeo because yeah, that might make the story make more sense.
2: It's still not much of a story.
0: Well, no.
3: But it- Everywhere I was looking to, you know, I love to get into the meetings of songs. And I always wanted one because this sounds so important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This song sounds yeah. so important. The, the lyrics are really poetic and <laughs> right?
0: very, and again, again, very grand, really. And yet-
3: it doesn't actually sort of land with anything specific. And I read on the forum that wouldn't let me join, um, that apparently Midge basically would write lyrics that would fit the general mood of music that was already written. Hmm. Like he didn't generally write lyrics and then make a song to fit it with the hmm. other guys. They put something together and said, this is going to be a song. And then Midge would go, ah, maybe these words will fit. And apparently this was something that was established early on when they made Vienna, they had pretty much everything written. And then he was standing in a meeting with them, and he goes, "This means nothing to me." And oh then, my god! <laughs> wow! And, and, and then later they were like, "Yeah, let's do something like that." And he came up with that, you know, ridiculously powerful line, and okay. that was apparently his thing. Like he would just find little snippets that would just slide into songs depending on the way that the music felt, and it would work. Huh? Wow. Awesome.
1: Uh, so we're on me, right? We're cleanly yep. going. This is the last song oh, okay. on the first
0: side of the mixtape. <laughs>
1: Great. Okay. Yes. Well, I uh, I wanted to pick songs for this week and next week that I really like that are from bands that I probably will not ever have on my show. And I thought I would kick it off with Girl from Ipanema Goes to Greenland by the B-52s. Yeah, that comes off their 1986 album, Bouncing Off the Satellites, which was released on September 8th, 1986. The album reached only number 85, and this song reached number 10 on Billboard's Hot Dance Club play charts. It was deemed, the whole album was deemed sort of a failure upon its release, primarily because this was one of the last songs that was written and recorded by original guitarist Ricky Wilson before he died of AIDS. In between the time the song was recorded and the album was released, he died. And by the time that he died, the band's heart was just not in promoting the album, and it frankly, is not one of their best albums anyway. And so I saw that sort they, just,
2: pulled, they pulled a lot of like solo material to try to fill it out to get it up yep. to album length.
1: Exactly. It does have Summer of Love, which is a great track. It's not that bad. It's just it's minor B-52s work. Apparently, which I did not know until researching this, Ricky had kept his uh, him having AIDS a secret from everyone in the band except guitarist Keith Strickland.
0: I can't understand
1: that. Me neither, especially when his sister Cindy is in the band and singing this song.
2: Yeah, I know. How do you hide
1: that? Yeah.
2: From everything I've re- I've read a dozen books on Queen, and it seems like there, there would be no way you could hide it based on exactly. what they say about Freddie in the studio for like the innuendo sessions and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. you just couldn't work at the pace that you're used to. You have to take breaks, and things would just go wrong with like your body. Yeah, yeah, it's so all strange. The
1: weight loss, potential right.
2: lesions, yeah. I don't
1: know, hair loss, all of it. Yeah,
2: I, I can't even comprehend that that they could not have known that something was up.
0: Yeah, especially like you said, the sister. I mean, Cindy, how did she not know? And then to find out. Yeah, no wonder they they didn't tour for this. No wonder they didn't promote this album for, for a variety of reasons. That would have just been
1: too hard. Yeah, I read a quote from Keith Strickland. This is in the February 2002 issue of The Advocate magazine. He says, not only were they the last ones we wrote together, meaning the songs for this album, specifically this one, but I felt we had reached a new level in our writing. We were trying new things and there was a maturity there. I will admit I am not a b52s diehard in any way okay i sort of have an issue with songs that feel like novelty songs you know little tossed off fun things that aren't real because i don't i have a hard time finding the emotion in a song like that and unfortunately b52s being kind of the fun party band that they are have a lot of songs that to me feel more like novelty songs than real songs that's not always the case you know private idaho rock lobster channel z girl from ipanema these are great tunes there's no question that these guys are great at what they do it's just it's not always for me you know
2: i I hear what you're saying They're, they're a band that i'm happy i have the greatest hits and I'm yes. Cosmic Thing, and that's sort of like all I feel that I need of the, from yes. the B-52s.
1: Yeah, I agree. That being said, I feel like, and I will stand by this, I think Cindy's vocal performance in this song is the greatest female vocal performance in alternative rock history. Wow. And yes, and I challenge anyone to present to me what they think would be a better female alternative rock vocal performance. I'm not talking Aretha Franklin here. Right, I'm talking right, right. alternative music, specifically the '80s. What's better? I've never heard anything better. It's, it's just soaring, and I think that this song is. Cons- <laughs> you know, we'll talk about the video in a minute, which mm. couldn't be more B52s than. <laughs> um, yeah. But I just uh, I love every speck of this song. I love every instrument. I love where it's placed, how it's mixed, how it sounds, how it feels. It is uh, one of the greatest alternative rock songs ever, in my opinion.
2: I have always thought that Kate was the better singer of the two girls mm-hmm. in the B-52s, just based on like the few things when I saw them on Saturday Night Live and Rome is like an awesome song. But I, I do think that her, her vocal in here is pretty awesome. Cindy's. I was very, Yeah, Cindy. Yeah. I, was, I was actually, after I listened to it and then went and saw it, I was sure that some of that great singing was going to prove to be Kate. Uh-huh when I finally, when I saw the video, so I was very surprised that it really isn't that she handles everything by herself.
0: yeah, mm-hmm. yeah i I wasn't aware of Cindy's vocal prowess either until the song, and I do agree it's a it's a tremendous vocal. I don't mm-hmm. know. I could probably think of a couple that might be better, but I'm not going to have that argument now.
1: The notes that she has to hit, that power is really amazing to me. I saw them in concert. It was them, Berlin and Tears for Fears. I saw them three years ago. And they played this song and it was very clear that Cindy was lip syncing primarily to a backing track, Mm. which doesn't surprise me because it would who in their 60s can hit these notes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's disappointing. Yes. But I was looking on YouTube and there was a there's a clip of her singing this song live in London a few years back. And it's very live. And she struggles a little bit, but it is so admirable. She does far better than anyone in her situation should have a right to do nailing this song. It can't be easy to hit those notes, but she did it. So I was really impressed. I wondered if it was one of those things where they just, uh, you know, lip sync to a backing track. And maybe they do most of the times, depending on how she's feeling. But she nailed it in this one YouTube video that I saw.
2: I would respect her way more for going out trying, even if she hit like half the notes poorly. Mm That's so much more respectable than lip-syncing in a concert situation.
1: I should clarify. I think she was lip singing over, I should I should say, to the girl from Ipanema goes to Greenland part with the big right. soaring vocal. Okay. The verses, I, she was singing regularly. Okay. It's just hitting those notes.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. All right. I got gotcha.
1: you. So I think this is a incredible song. It has such a funky bass line. Oh, yeah. Such excellent guitar work. My favorite part is those descending notes. And if I knew what they were called, technically, I would say it, but... You know the song kind of builds and then it diddlely, diddlely, you know, every right it yeah. does this over yeah. and over it every time it does it it just sends me shivers <laughs> i love it so much
2: the rhythm section of the song is has a great sound to it oh the, yeah the drums and, just, and the bass
0: it's chugging along and it goes so well with the video and they're kind of chugging across the screen in a line
2: i think that's because of the additional production by mr shep Pettibone that oh. that sounds so
1: good did you see that he did some work in on this one? i did however i only saw that he did a remixed version of this i don't know that he. He did this version in fact i should say this album was produced by tony mansfield You're yeah
0: kidding all right yes
1: and I, you guys love him yes. oh yeah, yeah
0: yeah. yes you know what i hear in this sound in this song summer the sound of 1986 <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> good or bad well it is no it's good it's when i heard and i didn't look it up when I was just like, when I first watched the video, not having any knowledge of the song or where it landed in their discography, because they look crazy all the time. So it wasn't like I could tell by their outfits yeah, know, really. what year they were from. But I said, this sounds like, you know, like late 86 or maybe early 87. It just has that, I don't know, it has that feel to it to me. And it, and that's not a bad thing. It's just me placing it in the time period and where it was, actually. So well,
1: See, to me, it sort of transcends. Sorry, Colby, to cut you off. No worries. This, uh, it, to me, it sounds... Fresher and even punchier. I don't think it sounds. I mean, talk about the assembly. To me, sounds like 1980, whatever that was, which is fine. I We look, we're all here talking because we love the sound yeah. of the 80s new wave. That's that's fine. Our ears are tuned to that. But I think this song sort of transcends. I think you could play it today to people, and it wouldn't be that you know shock uh, that big a shock to their system. That's just me, though. Kobe, what were you going to say?
3: I was going to be the voice of dissent.
0: Okay. No. <laughs> oh no. Oh, no. Never so
2: this,
1: it,
0: this is good. Good. Yeah, we I
3: need mean, some dissent. I mean, the B 52s obviously a huge part of the eighties, particularly new wave music. But like, it's never reached me. I've never been appreciative. I I can understand there's musicianship going on here, and I can appreciate parts of the whole. But when you put it all together, it just bothers me. It's just like this redundant mess, and I just have never been able to make my peace with anything that they've ever produced. It's just never really been my bag. And Mm. I I listened to this song and I was like, oh, yeah, the very first time that she hits that, I'm like, that's impressive. And then they do it again and again. (laughs) I'm just like, okay, I'm done with it. I'm just i done. So it's just never nothing that they've ever made really made an impact on me just as a miss.
0: So just taking it one step further from what John said about, you know, he appreciates songs that you know that you can kind of identify with or that have some kind of a message or a right. you know musical connection and you know that definitely seems to be the case with you here. Oh yeah. to maybe even a greater extent because
3: And like even just trying to harp in on the just the energy of the B52s like back in like the uh, late 80s early 90s would I have been like oh this is crap no I would have just rolled with it but when I'm just listening to, to the song trying to appreciate it it's hard <laughs> it's just hard for me
1: yeah, See, I feel that way about almost every other piece of music they've ever put out there That's why I thought this song was a little bit different And why I chose this one specifically Because I'm with you I mean, I think we're all kind of on the same page about the B-52s yeah. It's sort of a party joke thing that we don't always get But I thought it was If you, take, if you isolate this song it doesn't have now. The video is another story, but the <laughs> yeah. song itself doesn't necessarily have the jokey. I mean, no. the, the lyrics are sort of nonsensical, but the musicianship behind it all, the vibe of it all, is so good to me that
3: I it agree kind with of that. Sense
1: yeah, they, yeah, it's like not it.
3: it's not quite the novelty novelty rock stuff that they normally do.
0: No, I mean, other than the title and the video, but if you took this song, if you if you had someone that never heard of the b-52s didn't know anything about them never saw them before and you played them this song this would be like the probably the worst introduction you could give them to the band because it is not like anything else that they've done that i know of so i think it is sort of like you were saying almost like a one-off
4: right yeah
2: now i know we are sort of bad-mouthing not bad-mouthing but we're kind of slagging off the um novelty more novelty aspect of the of the band however i have in my notes here this is a really great song one of the best songs i've ever heard from them however you have fred schneider use him and i don't know what
1: even though yeah even though i fit him in
2: well here's the thing you have to do it in a way that doesn't make any sense like the deadbeat club single Mm -hmm. where which is a perfectly nice song with good singing and then every chorus he just goes deadbeat club Club. and you're like why did you bother to make him do that (laughs) (laughs) it's interrupting the song but right. because but that is he, part
0: of what they are and they are part of wh- yeah. who, who they are and
2: even though I I rarely listen to the B 52s and they're, they've never been important to me I for some reason love Fred Schneider I love his craziness and and it's just any like Rome I don't like listening to Rome because there's no Fred ah but now having mm-hmm. said this I think this song is way better than Rome okay. I could listen to this song and not mind would, that Fred's not there
1: but I would argue that the song is good because Fred is not say <laughs> I, I thought and that's I what like you'd Fred say too addition by subtraction right i'm not slamming fred necessarily but his voice is so specific that it's this it's you know a a spice or an ingredient that turns most songs into the onto the novelty
3: right side of the
1: spectrum you eliminate it and that's what makes it sort of something different something you could take a little bit more seriously
0: yep i would agree i don't miss fred on here i love him but Mm -hmm. he's great in the video (laughs)
2: he's bizarre in the video (laughs) i think i'm realizing as we realizing as we talk about this that i'm the flip side of you guys maybe because when i think about the b52 songs that i like a lot i like channel z and i like cosmic thing and good stuff Uh i like the songs where he is is highly featured i love Uh, that song oh yeah so i I think i like the crazy ones Uh. (laughs) yeah okay all right (laughs) but having said that like i said this is one of the best b52 songs i've ever heard
0: yeah Mm -hmm. i would agree Good, thank so, you. So we've got kind of to keep talking about the video. Do we wanna do we wanna really talk about the video?
1: Let's tackle it. Yeah. So um, it's it just couldn't be more B fifty twos than what it is. <laughs> it's clearly the four of them being told or directed to just just do your thing. That thing you guys do, just do that in front of this green screen and we'll put in some odd images behind it. Uh, <laughs> Yep. And they do, you know, they wear their funny outfits. At one point near the end, Keith Strickland's dancing in a Santa Claus suit. Yes. Yep. Uh, they've got odd dance moves. Cindy uh-huh. sings for a little while with a hat of fruit. Yes. Not a flute like Esther Williams. It's all so strange. My favorite part is when, for no good reason, they start showing a dog. And then suddenly Fred's head with sunglasses <laughs> yes. gets transposed over the top yeah. of the dog. Yeah, I know. Yeah,
0: yeah. That's my favorite
2: part. I I remember saying to myself, what is the point of that?
0: I I don't know. I I like the toast, too. They make a piece of toast, and then Kate starts eating the toast. (laughs) Yes. But then the other things I like about it, well... Other things that are notable, I guess I should say, there are these big, huge feet that come down a couple of times. Mm-hmm. That, they just like stomp. And that totally makes me think of Monty Python. Every mm. time I see oh, those yeah, feet yeah. come Sorry. down, I just think of Monty Python. Then one other thing I, I noticed on the comments on YouTube about this video that... It seems like maybe Kate Pearson invented dabbing 32 years earlier or something, because they're on 216 in the video. There's some moves there that really do look a lot like dabbing.
1: They do. Yeah, it's just nonsensical weirdness, but... It's what they do, and, you know, some might say it's what they do best. The late Ricky Wilson does show up a couple of times. His face is in a sun, I believe, at one point. The one thing I will say about this is, you know, the band is known for being goofy and party and funny and everything. It couldn't have been easy, maybe, to perform or film that video if you're still mourning the loss of your brother and bandmate and friend, you know. Right. But that doesn't stop them from pulling out Fruit Hats and uh, you know, weird wigs and st- anyway, it's just so them. But I, I just think that's a really great song that I can put on loop on a loop and never get sick of. Did
2: you ever see the movie Zardoz?
1: <laughs> no, I've never even heard of this.
3: <laughs> it's, it's, it's you like, should probably keep it that way.
2: It's an early seventies okay. Sean Connery science fiction movie that's so bizarre. But there's this giant metal floating head that flies around from place to place, and that's what Kate's head reminds me of in this video with her <laughs> huge hair. As oh. soon as I saw her, I thought of Zardoz. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> well, I think that's side one of our mixtape, guys.
0: It is, mm-hmm. yeah. More songs—that's good.
2: So, we hope you enjoyed our selections and enjoyed maybe learning a little bit about the bands.
1: Is there any way for listeners to like vote on who <laughs> won side one?
2: Yeah, I'm actually—I was actually going to do that because on because we
1: know you're going to lose.
0: Wait,
2: <laughs> oh man!
1: So,
0: so wait, so John, I have to. Ask, did Tara you? might win. Did did you talk to Brian about this already? No, no. Wow. No. Okay, so just great minds think alike. Maybe because you already had yeah. that idea, Brian.
2: Yeah, because you can do those About polls and stuff on Twitter oh. and Facebook, and four is the limit of songs you can, or choices you can make in the poll. So I thought I could do that. My Let's only hesitation it. is I, I would hate to deal with it. like you know we do this episode and we have fun and we put it out there and then a week later two people have voted. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I could handle that, but That's I true. I but I am going to do it. We'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, we just don't have to mention it.
0: We we, we have <laughs> yeah. we have well, the star it power. Our mind. <laughs> we have star power with us this time though
2: that's that's a good point so maybe we'll I get a better know. turnout than than last time yeah i don't know so if you enjoyed the mixtape episode if you like talking about these bands or you have any information that you feel that we missed that we should know about there's going to be an inevitable post on facebook sharing the episode feel free to chime in there you can re- we'll all see those or you can reach out to us via email i think we're at permrecordpodcast@mail.com. podcast at com. right John has a website. What's your website, John?
1: Uh, It's thehustle.podbean.com. I usually just tell people to find us on Facebook as well, and you can send me messages on there. If there's someone from a band that you loved from the 70s 80s 90s that you just haven't heard from for a long time let me know and i'll see if i can track those people down and we'll find out how they pay their bills
2: very cool and I've, I've said numerous times on here that people should check out your show and so i'll reiterate that now and if you've managed to find our podcast wherever you're finding it you can find john's there too because he's i'm sure done a better job at getting listed on different directories and things than we did so search for the hustle and it's a nice yellow logo yep and yep it's
0: really that's good. what you want to listen to that's so that's right
2: there's Thank about you. 200 episodes go through pick out somebody that you already love, listen to it, and then maybe go back and see check what out, else. Yeah, see what else you can find out. It's, it's yeah. fun.
0: You can learn a lot, no matter what. Yep. So very thanks,
2: true. thanks very much for joining us for uh, the discussion today, John. We appreciate it a lot.
1: Thank you guys for having me.
2: And we will see you in a week's time as we flip the tape and do another four songs for our summer mixtape. Sounds good, Colby. Thanks for sitting in with us as well. Always a pleasure. It's always fun to have you here. I'm interested to get your take next week on my college roommate.
3: Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All man. right,
2: everyone. Well, thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.
4: You know you can't stop it when they start to play You gotta get out of the way The politics of dancing The politics of feeling good The politics of moving on Is this message understood?